This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So the beginning of the second book of Aristotle's Metaphysics has one of the most beautiful lines, at least from my perspective. This text is so beautiful, in fact, that most scholars agree that it could not have been intended as a metaphysical text, that it probably was intended as something like a graduation ceremony speech, talking about the difficulties of pursuing wisdom. The line that sticks out in my mind and my memory is, as the eyes of bats are to the blaze of day, so is the mind and the soul to those things by nature most manifest. Or to paraphrase, as the eyes of bats are to the brilliance of the sun, so are our minds to those things most brilliant. This comparison between our intellects and the eyes of bats is confirmed by experience. So sometimes we fail to understand a notion because the notion itself is defective. But other times we fail to understand a notion because relative to the notion, our intellects are defective. So the notion pushes past the limits of our mind and all that registers is fuzz. The comparison between us and bats, however, seems to end there. Bats, as far as I can tell, do not desire to stare into the blaze of the sun. According to Aristotle, however, all men by nature desire to know. This desire to know takes on different expressions in different men. Some people are satisfied simply knowing what's necessary to get on in daily life. Where's the coffee? Others are satisfied by knowing a lot about a given subject, whether that subject is necessary or not. Baseball stats. And still others act as though they will be satisfied only when they know those things most manifest, when they can, as it were, stare into the blaze of the sun. To put this another way, it's evident that while everyone has some knowledge, not everyone has it in equal measure or in equal kind. While the differences between us are attributable in some sense to intellectual aptitude, they seem to me to be due primarily to desire. We will end up possessing the kind of knowledge that we want to possess. For this reason, it's good to pause wherever we are in the process of studying, and to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? This is helpful not only for basic self-awareness, but because if our desires get off track, if we cease to desire the highest things most, then we will end up not coming into possession of those highest things. In short, we will end up where our desires point us. My desire in this talk is ultimately practical. The title of the talk is Wisdom Sought, Wisdom Given. Although we'll begin in the first part by examining and distinguishing between 
the virtue of wisdom on the one hand and the gift of wisdom on the other hand, this will be preparatory for the second part, which will focus on the role that desire plays in our acquisition of the virtue of wisdom and then in our reception of the gift. So what is the virtue of wisdom? Thomas follows Aristotle in describing the virtue of wisdom from two perspectives. In some instances, he points to what we can call its genesis in sensation, memory, and experience. And then in other places, he analyzes it into some more elemental acts of the mind. So understanding, judgment, and then reasoning. Rather than going through these two aspects or perspectives separately, I'd like to integrate them. Uh, this will be what I take to be a Thomistic phenomenological account of the progress of wisdom. Say that five times. It's also customary to hang uh, one's description of the progress toward the virtue of wisdom on an example. Um, and that example is usually a chair or <laughs> a ship, sometimes a house. Um, I'm going to give the chair and the ship and the house a rest and pick an example that's a little more lively, but also a little more elusive. I'm going to do this, um, probably flail about in the process, um, because it seems to be a little bit more true to our own experience, that we don't desire to know the ultimate cause of a chair. <laughs> um, why? Well, because at least the, the immediate causes of chairs are much more obvious to us than the causes of, say, a squirrel. The causes of a chair are more knowable to us because we are the artisans, whereas we are not the artisan of the squirrel. So, what is the end of a squirrel? <laughs> One of the things we'll be able to ask, right, when we see God face to face. So wisdom for Aristotle and Thomas begins in experience. I'm using experience here loosely in a non-philosophical and a non-technical sense. What I mean uh, by experience is whatever we have when we see and hear something, when we interact with it, and when we can distinguish it from other aspects of our experience. We can reflect on our experience, but also we can just experience or at least before we entered degree programs, we were able to just experience and not reflect on it. Okay, so consider the experience we have of a squirrel. Suppose you were not in Connecticut and you happened to have been raised in a city. And then suppose you went to Washington DC and suppose it was a hot day. So you were outside and you took out your, your lunch bag, you had your sandwich, put it out on the lunch table, and then suddenly in front of you, there is a furry gray thing chattering at you, waving his fist and pointing to your sandwich. <laughs> um, you explain to this furry gray thing that the sandwich is your lunch <laughs> and that you would like to eat it very much. You know, thank you. A guy sitting nearby you says, it doesn't understand. Just give it your sandwich. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Uh, DC squirrels, by the way, are very aggressive. <laughs> if they could talk, they would have. I, I don't know why I imagine them having like a, a Brooklyn accent or something, but <laughs> yeah. mixing my mixing my my cities here. All right, next week you're walking with a friend and you see a rat. The rat behaves differently than the furry gray thing that you secretly named Ricky. You say to your friend, not all gray rodents are Rickies, but all Rickies are gray. The friend says, first, why are you speaking so awkwardly? <laughs> Second, if by Ricky you mean a squirrel, there are squirrels of other colors, black squirrels, red squirrels, and even albino ones. Oh, you reply, but why? <laughs> the friend looks at you, why what? You reply, why are some squirrels black? So let's make a few observations <laughs> um, other than awkwardness uh, about what has been achieved over time in your experience. First, you became acquainted with a particular squirrel. You did not start with a definition, but rather with observations of how the squirrel acts and how it responds. This gave you several judgments of the fact, namely judgments that Ricky is gray, that Ricky is nonverbal. These judgments of the fact describe your knowledge of Ricky, but those descriptions are different from your knowledge of Ricky itself. We might say that you had an understanding, an intuitive grasp of the squirrel before you articulated your knowledge into judgments. So you have an intuitive understanding of Ricky, and then that gets articulated into judgments. And all this is occurring at the, the level of experience at the picnic table. Second, when you encountered other particular squirrels, this time through speech, through your friend, you were able to sort out what was peculiar to Ricky and what was common to other squirrels. This meant that you acquired not only an intuitive understanding and judgments about Ricky, but also an understanding of what all squirrels are and about what all squirrels do. Thomas, in his commentary on the passage that I'm drawing from, explains this understanding that you have. He says it is intellectus because it legit, it reads within. So there's some similarity um, etymologically. So you have, both through your understanding and then articulation into judgments, you have understood, you have read into what Ricky is. Third observation about what you've arrived at with experience. The question, why are some squirrels black, came from your experience, but it itself was not part of your experience. So the question why is a response to experience. It's not something that you experience. Asking why, in fact, is what transitions you from merely having understanding and judgments of the fact into having science. That is to say, judgments of the cause. So that's why it's important to say why is not part of your experience. It's the thing that impels you beyond experience to something 
that is qualitatively um, more complex. Okay, so how does our experience take a further step toward wisdom by developing into science? Science, as I just mentioned, consists in judgments of the cause, trying to identify why, rather than simply identifying that something is the case. You would have science about black squirrels, for example, if you could identify the reason why black squirrels are black. What would this look like? The science of black squirrels. Your desire to know why black squirrels are black impels you to search for causes. You search for a cause not by looking at things that are utterly unrelated to black squirrels, but by looking into black squirrels even more intently. So this is strange. You're trying to find the why. Why are you what you are? And you say, I'm going to dig deeper. I'm not going to look elsewhere. I'm going to dig deeper. So suppose in your research, you start asking questions about the squirrel. And you hear that black squirrels are native to Russia. After momentarily dismissing the question, what are Russian squirrels doing in Washington, DC? You formulate your discovery into a syllogism a beautifully compact argument. You can laugh a little late if you'd like. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, there's, they were a gift. No joke. There are black squirrels in DC and they were a gift from the Russians. Um, <laughs> long time ago though. Uh, <laughs> so you formulate um, your discovery into a syllogism and it is as follows. Question, why are black squirrels black? Premise one. Black squirrels are capable of escaping notice by predators in Russian forests. Premise two, anything capable of escaping notice by predators in Russian forests is black. <sighs> you have now discovered why, <laughs> in part. So how has this inquiry expressed in a syllogism profited you beyond what you knew in experience? You now have a deeper penetration into Ricky and also into all other black squirrels. You know not merely what Ricky is like, but why he is like whatever he is. This, however, isn't necessarily the end of your inquiry, although it could stop there. Suppose you now turn your attention to the second premise of your syllogism and ask why again. Why is anything capable of escaping notice in Russian forests black? Your research this time focuses not on black squirrels, but on Russian forests, the supposed cause of the black squirrel's blackness. You discover that Russian forests are peculiarly dark. And now you have another syllogism. Question, why is anything capable of escaping notice by predators in Russian forests black? Premise one, anything capable of escaping notice in Russian forests is able to blend in with dark wood. Premise two, what can blend in with dark wood is black. At this point, you might ask, is this all there is to wisdom? Syllogisms about squirrels? Thankfully, no. Wisdom isn't simply an aggregation of syllogisms, but it does begin with an aggregation of syllogisms. Here are two ways we might transition from science toward wisdom. Both of them involve our asking why about the relationship between 
multiple syllogisms. So now our Y isn't directed at a single thing, at a single term, but our Y is going to be directed at the conclusions of multiple syllogisms. So one way that we can um, pursue this Y relating multiple syllogisms is what I'll call a horizontal relationship. Suppose, after inquiring into the causes of Ricky's characteristics, I run across a chinchilla, which I name Lucy, and I start a new inquiry. At some point, I might wonder about the relationship between what I've discovered about Ricky and what I've discovered about Lucy. In this case, the resolution to my wonder isn't merely another conclusion on the same level as my conclusions about Ricky and Lucy but it will be a grasp of how these conclusions themselves are ordered. Another way of transitioning from science to wisdom is to note a relationship between syllogisms about the same subject, but not on the horizontal level, but so to speak on a vertical level. So suppose after noting that Lucy lives in a herd and that she does this for survival, I could then ask, but why does she desire to survive? My wonder in this case isn't merely about another horizontal relationship between conclusions, but about the cause of a cause of Lucy's behavior. Some causes are foundational for others. Sometimes our acquaintance with one cause doesn't satisfy our wonder, but only increases it. It increases our desire to know further, more foundational causes. All this is to say, science progresses toward wisdom when we desire to know the most foundational or the highest causes. These causes would be the ultimate expression, not only of chinchilla behavior and squirrel coloration, but also of the behavior of appetite in general, of the features of matter and the nature of unity. leaving science behind. How we progress toward wisdom in science is different, however, from the activity of wisdom itself. So how you get to Litchfield, Connecticut is different from being in Litchfield, Connecticut. Suppose we became intentionally acquainted with the highest causes of things. Suppose we came to some understanding of the highest causes of things in a way that was analogous to our understanding of Ricky and Lucy. This would be understanding, an intuitive grasp, but it wouldn't yet be the activity of wisdom. So the act of understanding the highest cause is necessary but not sufficient for wisdom. We engage in the activity of wisdom only when we use our understanding of the highest causes in order to make a judgment about lower things. This judgment will be a further articulation of what each lower thing is, namely of how it relates to those highest causes, of how it fits into the order of everything that exists. Thus far, I've been talking about wisdom in a generic way. I've spent time distinguishing between gray and black squirrels 
um, but haven't yet said anything about important differences, like the difference between philosophical wisdom and theological wisdom. So the time has come, almost. Before distinguishing between philosophical wisdom and theological wisdom, I'd like to draw attention to three things that these activities have in common. So first, both, um, if you want to say philosophizing and theologizing, <laughs> both of these qualify as wisdom insofar as both of them involve, first, an understanding of the highest causes, and then second, an act of judging how other things are ordered with respect to those causes. So second similarity, both philosophizing and theologizing involve at heart, not a knowledge of propositions, of syllogisms, but a knowledge of things. I mention this because it has become so customary to explain what wisdom is by referring to terms and propositions and conclusions that we can sometimes mistake the expression for the reality. Um, those, you know, so propositions, terms, and syllogisms are the tools of logic. Logic maps and it expresses what we know, but logic is not the primary object of our knowing. Things are. So third similarity between philosophizing and theologizing. They're both virtues that perfect the speculative intellect. So the part of our intellect that knows and judges things that are not practical, knows for its own sake. Both the virtue of philosophical wisdom and of theological wisdom, moreover, can be acquired, namely acquired by our repeated effort and inquiry on our part, and also they can be infused, that is, they can be placed in us by the Holy Spirit apart from or alongside our effort. Both philosophical wisdom and theological wisdom, in other words, remain human acts, whether they are assisted by special graces or not. And I wanted to hang on that just to, to repeat it, that philosophical and theological wisdom are virtues. And even if they occur with the assistance of grace, they remain acts that we perform. So how do philosophical and theological wisdom differ? They differ regarding the source of our understanding of the highest causes, and also our understanding of the lower things that we judge. So philosophical wisdom takes its beginnings from empirical experience and proceeds by a purely rational assent to what it perceives. Theological wisdom takes its beginning from special revelation and proceeds by the ascent of faith as well as by purely rational ascent. Although faith is a theological virtue and a gift from the Holy Spirit, that influence of faith on the activity of wisdom does not constitute the gift of wisdom. So I wanted to focus on that just to say that you can be a philosopher, you can be a theologian, and the gifts of faith, hope, and charity can be active in you, and you can receive infused 
virtues to assist your philosophizing and theologizing. But that still is not yet the gift of wisdom. It's even more amazing than that. So what is that gift of wisdom? All right. First, about the gift, we should note that even the gift, even though the gift differs from theological and philosophical wisdom, it is nevertheless wisdom. So the gift of wisdom still involves an understanding of the highest causes and then a judgment of lower things on the basis of that understanding. The difference between the gift and the virtues is, is expressed, however, in each of those two moments of understanding and judgment. In the gift of wisdom, the highest causes, the causes of the causes of the causes, they're understood not by abstraction, by inquiry and effort, as occurs in the case of the virtue of understanding, nor by an infused light, as might happen um, with infused understanding, and also not obscurely, as in the case of faith. So in the, the gift of wisdom, you understand not in the way that, that accompanies the theological virtue of faith, but also your understanding isn't exhaustive because the highest causes we're speaking of here are those things that are as bright as the blaze of day. So how do we understand in the gift of wisdom? We understand by an immediate contact, immediate contact between the will and God. For those of us who are accustomed to the ordinary process of coming to understand, there are at least three things that should strike us about that statement, that understanding occurs by immediate contact between the will and God. So first striking thing is that the relationship between the will and its object, the thing that it desires, appears to be reversed. Ordinarily, our will is united with the object that it desires by its own act of love. Love aims at union with the beloved. But love impels the will toward the object. In this case, it's not an espresso <laughs> um, that I'm moving toward, but rather, it's as though the espresso were moving toward me. Right? In this case, it's not the will that's going out to the object that is loved, but it is the beloved that is uniting itself to my will. Once again, mystically, the will is united with its object by being loved. To underscore, it is not we who initiate this motion but the Holy Spirit. Our role in this isn't to imitate the Holy Spirit's initiative, but to suffer it. We love the Holy Spirit by letting ourselves be loved. So second strange, amazing thing about this immediate contact between the will and God is that the relationship between the intellect and the will appears to be reversed. 
Ordinarily, the will receives its object from the intellect. So only after perceiving the, the espresso does my will respond with an act of love. Mystically, however, the intellect receives its object from the will. You tell how hard that is even to come out of my, my mouth, right? Only after the will suffers its object in love does the intellect perceive the object. When the will suffers its object, the will becomes conformed to that object. The phrase that is used here is the will becomes co-natural to the object. So because it has been, it has suffered the presence of this object, the will itself is conformed. This conformity in the will renders the object present to the intellect not as something that has been abstracted from exterior, external experience, but as something that I am experiencing intimately, internally, now. Third striking thing about understanding within the gift of wisdom. It's noteworthy that St. Thomas describes understanding um, as a touching and a tasting and not as a seeing. This is significant because it underscores our receptive role in knowing. The touch, the union, is not a result of my reaching out or my grasping, but of my being touched. Thomas's use of touch and taste here is also significant because it illustrates the intimate quality of this kind of knowing. Touch is impossible if there is any distance between the subject and the object. Sight is possible only if there is distance. So if you put the espresso on your eye, you won't see it. <laughs> we don't see the Holy Spirit. He touches us. It's significant, again, uh, because one of the chief occupational hazards of the philosopher or the lover or seeker of wisdom is to get so caught up in abstractions that he loses contact with the things of experience. The Holy Spirit is not an abstraction. Abstractions do not initiate contact. Okay. The other component of wisdom, and then the gift of wisdom, is the act of judging. With the gift, the act of judging things in their relation to God as the highest cause is no less intimate than the component of understanding just addressed. The Holy Spirit doesn't merely make himself known to us by his presence in our will. He also is the one present in me making the judgment. That is to say, the act of judging things in their relation to God, mystically known, is not an act that I perform at the Holy Spirit's prompting. Nor is it an act that I perform with the Holy Spirit's supportive power, as though he simply gives me more capacity to see. 
It is rather the Holy Spirit that performs an act in me using my intellect. The image that came to mind when I was sketching out this portion of the talk um, was of a swing in my backyard where I was growing up and of a time when I was um, pretty, pretty young, pretty small and pretty light. Uh, my sister, who is four and a half years older than I, I am, was, was on the swing and she was just, I mean, from my perspective, she was up in the trees. And I was, I just couldn't figure out by looking at her how she could get so high. Um, and in response to that, I think my dad was out there and, uh, <clears throat> and I said, how, how do you do that? So initially he just described to me, he was pointing to what my sister was doing and he was describing, you know, you, you put your, your toes out and you go forward and you put your toes back and you lean back when you're going back. That description didn't really didn't really work so she got off the swing you know and then he said okay now you try that didn't work um and so he tried you know because I, I said i i wanted not just to be pushed but i wanted to do it right so he said okay well here and he moved my feet forward you know when i went forward and then he, he pulled them back and said lean back lean back right and then we tried that for a little bit <laughs> um and that still didn't work and what he resorted to um, was saying, okay, get off the swing. He got on the swing and he said, here, get on my lap. He said, just stay still and feel what happens. So he put his feet out and mine went out just because I was still. And then as we went back, he leaned back, I leaned back and I felt it. And because my dad was predictably much heavier and much taller than I was, we were in the trees. <laughs> I was in the tree, right? So you could say, why was I able to go so high? Paradoxically, the less that I did, the more I was able to do. If I had tried to pump on my own, I would have thwarted my dad's efforts. I would have worked against him. But because I was docile to what he was doing, then I, I was truly pumping, right? My, my feet were going, but it was by his power and it was by his initiative. My contribution was not to resist. So the image does break down <laughs> because I can now pump on my own, <laughs> um, but we never learn how to mystically um, judge on our own. Um, and to mix these images the Holy Spirit doesn't get off the swing and say, now it's your turn. <laughs> okay, let's take stock. Thus far, we've considered what the virtues of philosophical and theological wisdom are, what the gift of wisdom is, and how these three wisdoms differ. Recall, though, that my original desire for this talk was to note the role of desire in our pursuit of wisdom. And to do this not only for the sake of pure speculation, but for some practical application, namely to bring about some change in how we pursue wisdom. Since I have a lot more experience with how desire and the pursuit of wisdom goes wrong rather than how it goes right, um, and since identifying where you don't want to go is better than having no orientation at all, I'd like to close by noting some ways 
in which our desires can thwart our pursuit and reception of wisdom. So first, the virtue of wisdom, philosophical or theological. What do we do that thwarts our acquisition of the virtue of wisdom? Here's the principle, and then I'll give four applications. We thwart our growth and wisdom whenever we fix our attention on anything less than the greatest good. Note, by the way, that language of fixing. We fix our attention by means of our will, which is an appetite. But our attention will always involve our apprehension, our intellect. Fixing our attention on anything less than the greatest good will lead me to one or more species of fear. And it is always these fears that stymie our progress. So four examples. These are not exhaustive. They are exhausting, though. <laughs> um, by fixing our attention on the suffering, ugh, on the labor, on the toil involved in study, we bring laziness upon ourselves. Um, and I am sure that all of you know how to fix your attention upon the difficulty of studying in such a way that you end up not studying. This is commonly known as procrastination. Right? Um, you just alternate between the difficulty and then something that will soothe you, right? Organizing your sock drawer, study. Organizing your roommate's sock drawer, <laughs> awkward. Um, okay, second way that we can fix our attention on something less than the greatest good or the highest cause. Uh, we fix our attention on the evils um, of the things that we are studying. And in doing so, we bring stupor upon ourselves. So rather than attending to those things that bring light, that have some sort of light, um, we attend to those things that are peculiar in a way that actually um, paralyzes us. Third, by fixing our attention on the mechanics of our own study, we can drain ourselves from wonder. So here, it's actually not the presence of fear, but it's the absence of the good fear that stymies our progress. I think this happens when we find ourselves, we're still writing, we're still talking, we're still publishing, um, but if we were to honestly answer, why am I doing this? It would probably be something like, I don't know anything else better to do. Right? Or uh, I do this out of, out, of, you know, out of boredom. I haven't um, been drawn by wonder at something. Why? Because my attention has been fixed on something that is not the most, um, magnificent, wonderful, you know, capable of admiration object. Uh, fifth, sorry, that's four. Uh, four, fixing our attention on threats, internal or external, will also drain us of wonder. How does this happen? Insofar as we perceive and pay attention to threats, we'll focus our energies on gathering knowledge for the sake of self-defense, think I need to know this in order to be able to um, you know, have a good argument, or I need to know this um, in order to put, put food on the table. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm not uh, suggesting that all of these um, ways of fixing our attention are entirely under our control, but there is some, some aspect that is. 
Um, I think that there is a, a relationship between fixing our attention on threats um, in order to protect ourselves and also what I'm, I'm calling uh, a fear addiction. I've noticed, I, well, I guess a little bit in myself, but also in some of my students, that um, often we will fix our attention on threats because we won't feel alive unless we're fleeing or fighting something. Needless to say, a mind that is addicted to fleeing and fighting is not open to perceiving the highest and greatest things. Okay, the gift. What thwarts our openness to receiving the gift? Although the same list of um, impediments to growth and the virtue of wisdom could be mentioned here, so those, those four could also be mentioned here, I'd like to focus on the one fear, the fifth one, that I take to be the primary impediment to all growth and wisdom. Any guesses? Any guesses? <laughs> Anxiety. So recall that the gift of wisdom begins with docility in the will and that it expresses itself in docility of the intellect, both in an act of understanding and in an act of judging. This docility is impossible if I refuse to let go. The refusal to let go of control stems from judging that I must be the one to protect myself against whatever unknown future evils present themselves. Digging even more. What's beneath that judgment? What's beneath that judgment that I have to be the one to protect myself against a future evil? And therefore, I have to maintain control. I think there are at least two lies. First, that God does not love me enough or will not love me enough to care for me in the face of evil. Therefore, I must rely on myself. I know this is sounding dramatic, but when I say evil here, it can be as simple as the evil of the difficulty of study or the evil of being, being rejected or being dismissed from a program or of disappointing your, your parents. A second lie that leads again to this self-reliance, the belief that relying on myself is the price of being loved by God. Sometimes we can believe falsely that acquiring some measure of the virtue of wisdom is the price of being given the gift of wisdom. That is a lie. Just to note, the act to which anxiety always inclines us is self-reliance on my strength and on my judgments. So this brief and incomplete catalog of impediments to wisdom um, might sound depressing, um, and it would be a very depressing end <laughs> to a talk. Um, but I'll end the talk by saying it's actually good news that we can come down to this level of identifying the impediments to growth and wisdom um, to something so specific as laziness, stupor, lack of wonder, um, and anxiety. <clears throat> Why? Because these clear impediments point to the clear remedy. Surrender. So surrender sounds, um, again, it sounds like a command, and it also sounds impossible to many of us. 
precisely in the degree that we are gripped by fear. But thankfully, surrender is possible if and only if we know that we are loved. And thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit initiates our own surrender by giving himself to us, by touching us. He unites himself to us in charity. And this is for us both the end of fear, the beginning of wisdom, and the source of all peace.